Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 30. It's kind of known popularly as the, uh, as the story of the rich young man. But we're going to see that there's a lot more dimensionality to it than simply that. It's not just another example, for instance, to say <clears throat> basically that, that Christ condemned wealth or that, that, that wealth was an absolute prohibition to salvation or any of those kinds of things, which very oftentimes people like to use these passages of the gospel for. Because wealth in, in the Gospels, while sometimes they do simply refer to material wealth, we know that very, very often wealth is simply a representation of some other kind of, some other kind of attachment or some other kind of obstacle to the interior surrender of the self. And so when we get to the point then, it says Jesus was setting out on a journey when a man ran up, knelt down before him, and put this question to him. Now, Mark just says a man ran up to him and knelt down. Matthew is the one who identifies him as a young man. And uh, so the, the synoptic gospels kind of uh, cooperate in trying to paint, uh, paint a picture. I think it's Luke also who then says that he was, uh, he was the ruler of a certain territory or something. The idea being no matter what is that he was in fact a person of some kind of substance and, stand, and standing within the community. And the man says to him, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. You know the commandments. You must not steal. You must not commit adultery. You must not kill. You must not bring false witness. You must not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And the man looked at Jesus and said to him, Master, I have kept all these for my earliest days. And Jesus looked steadily at him and loved him and said, There is one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come, follow me. But his face fell at these words and he went away sad for he was a man of great wealth. All right. Here we have a number of realities going on, a number of important things going on in, in, in the life of this man. And this story of, you know, I've kept all the commandments all of my life. Um, I'm a righteous man. I'm a just man. I've done everything good. Um, what more can I do? This is kind of a perennial question for the human person. And it drives us in many different directions. And it, it twists our, our, our inner life around in many, many, many different ways. For how many people in the course of their lifetime say, you know... I have every reason to be content. I have every reason to be happy. Certainly there are goals of sorts that I have not reached, but, but there's something deep inside that's missing. And, and uh, the gospel says, you know, what must I do to gain eternal life? That's maybe not be the only way that people are able to articulate this kind of sense of lack or emptiness in the deep, deep in their lives and deep in their hearts. But that's what this represents, this in the gospel. The common human phenomenon 
of having this sense of not being complete, of the whole thing not being finished, of there's got a lot of stuff, have a good life, good friendships, good marriage, good family, but there's something lacking. And so this young man now comes to the master and says to him, what is this that's lacking in me and how do I overcome it? I think it's a question, as I said, that many of us ask in the course of our life and many of us should ask in the course of our lifetimes. Because because in all honesty, as Augustine reminds us, <clears throat> our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in thee. You can be very content with your life. You can be very satisfied with your life. You can have a real sense of even of accomplishment, of achievement. You can have a deep and a burning appreciation of the people who have cared about you, have loved you, of their families, of your friendships, and so forth, and say, who could have a better life than I did? Who could have had... And yet at the same time, there's something kind of deep inside that just isn't there. That's the young man's question. And Jesus then, first of all, he challenges him on calling him good master. And he says, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of frivolous to, to say that because only one person is good and that is God. And so basically if you call someone good, you are calling them in harmony and deep harmony and in deep relationship with, with the infinite, with the loving God. And really um, no one really is that perfect representation of that. We, we seek, you know, it's really kind of funny because <clears throat> we're, we're society ourselves very vulnerable to celebrity and very vulnerable to all those kinds of things. And, and that's part of this too. You're, we're projecting on others a perfection or a talent or, or an appearance or something that we don't have. And so what we do is we are kind of giving adulation to what is missing within ourselves. And in so doing trying very hard then to fulfill that emptiness in ourselves by the adulation and the pursuit of those whom we believe them to exist in. And whether we do this as trivially as, as with entertainers, as with sports heroes, um, you know, what, what young guy on, on a football team, no matter how good they are, doesn't dream someday of being greater than, and you fill in the number, greater than Tom Brady, greater than, so wouldn't it be great? But, but if I'm not, then that's a lack inside of me. And so basically, in asking this question of Jesus, the man is saying, what must I do to be fulfilled? Now, this young man... Um, again, taking Matthew's designation of him as a young man, Jesus looks at him and says, you know, <clears throat> you've, you've done everything right. And Jesus loves him because he is a righteous and a just and a good man. You've done, you have really done everything right. And you have acquired great position, great standing, great status within the world in which you live. You really do have everything that the world has to offer you. But that's the limit everything that the world has to offer you. But the man is asking for something more than that. He's asking for something deeper and greater and more profound than that. And so Jesus says, since you have acquired the fullness of what the world has to offer you, give that away and then see what infinity, what transcendence, 
what God himself, being, what being, what the Lord Jesus, what does he have to offer you to bring to true fulfillment and true completion this incomplete life that you experience? And so what he does is it's not, you know, again, wealth becomes in a way kind of a symbol in all of this kind of thing. But uh, so he says, give away everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me. This is pretty shocking because the man really, it appears, is being offered to become an apostle. And um, not just a disciple, but an apostle. And... um, And yet when he says, dare I take the risk of abandoning everything I have, everything that the world gives me to make myself feel complete and full and whole, dare I take the risk of giving that away in the confidence that God will suffice, that God is enough for me in all the dimensions of my life. He asks a most powerful question, a question that each of us face oftentimes in less dramatic and less serious ways. And in asking us that, he challenges each of us to, what is it that we cling to in our lives to make us feel complete and whole, to give us a sense of satisfaction in life, that isn't enough, but we don't dare take the risk to see if the Lord's promise is enough to us. Certainly there are great characters and great stories within humanity in which people have done this, have closed their eyes, gritted their teeth, and done exactly what the, what the Lord asked this young man to do. And they become kind of towering figures in, 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 in the hagiography of our faith. We certainly can see that in the person of Francis. We see it in the person of Dominic. We see it in the person of Mother Teresa. We see it <clears throat> in all the apostles as well. And as the Gospels goes on, the apostles are going to get in on this act too. And... Uh, <clears throat> And it's kind of interesting, because later on in the gospel, um, Peter says, well, you know, you told him to give everything away. We've given everything away. What do we get now? And uh, and St. Jerome reminds St. Peter in his commentary, you gave away a boat and a few nets. Jesus is asking a lot more of you than that. And uh, and that's why this man is raised up in hyperbola to uh, to a phenomenal sacrifice because he wants to put into proportion into perspective for us the fact <clears throat> that what we give away compared with what Jesus has this man to give away is virtually nothing actually a boat and a few nets versus vast wealth power and riches and position and all of that kind of a thing so Jerome in his own kind of who has a tendency actually to be fairly snarky about things um, chides St. Peter in his commentary on this very thing and says to him, you know, uh, wrong question. <clears throat> what you just got, even before you go any further, <clears throat> is more than you had in the beginning. And what the gospel wants us to understand is that that's not true of the young man. And so it's it's meant to be an, a totally um, a totally inclusive kind of, of demand. And you know, we call it a demand, we call it a sacrifice. 
um, those of us who are celibate, <clears throat> um, certainly we, we at least in the early days of our priesthood, certainly are going to consider the giving up of, of a married life as, as a great sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> but we also, we also know that we can't deal with that in absolute terms because many people who have not become celibate and have pursued the married life have found in their own personal lives that that they are that they are desperate, that they are unhappy, that they are empty. It's not that this idea, gee, if I hadn't been a celibate, gee, my life, I would have been serendipitous, you know. Um, beautiful wife, beautiful children, everything goes right, everything's successful, all of that. Well, any of us who know much at all about human nature, which hopefully most of us do because of how we live, know that that's silly. That. Um, we talk about a great sacrifice. What about what? What about uh, a man who who marries a woman <coughs> who loses her mind, or who marries a woman who wasn't who she thought she was, and so on and so forth? Certainly, is their suffering less than ours because um, because of our sacrifice? And my experience, the answer to that really is no. That their sacrifices are horrendous and deep and and uh, much much for us to be reflected upon, prayed over, in order that we might come to understand that, uh, <clears throat> that we might, might, might come to understand more deeply that what we give to the Lord we call sacrifice, but what we give to the Lord seldom turns out in the end to have been a sacrifice. For what it turns out in the end to be is that privileged, interior, deep, significant relationship with the living God who is more than we can ever hope for, more than we can ever be, more than we can ever even consume within ourselves. Part of the phenomenal mystery of the Eucharist is that this, in, that this, this infinite, this, this being that is everything, we find ways in, in our human life, in our sacramental life, to, to consume that and to have him live therefore within us and to, and to pulse in our veins and to expand the inner person, the inner self, to make us deeper human beings. It's, it's most remarkable. It is most remarkable what the Lord has bequeathed to us in the sacramental life of his church. And so as the man turns away from the very thing he's seeking, because he has chosen actually something less. Jesus then goes on <clears throat> and says to his disciples how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astounded by these words, but Jesus insisted, my children, he said to them, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were more astonished than ever. In that case, they said to one another, well, then who can be saved? Jesus gazed at them and said, for men, it is impossible, but not for God, because everything is possible for God. Again, wealth now becomes not the, uh, not the gold and silver coins. Wealth now becomes the symbol of choices in our lives, the symbol of attachments, the symbol, the symbol of, of the grasping onto something, the symbol of the holding onto something that gives us a sense of well-being. It's, 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 it's the life jacket in the storm. Um, <clears throat> but... He said, then why are the apostles then so surprised? Why not say, oh, is that the way it is? 
because, and we find this in contemporary Christianity all over the place, because <clears throat> what the truth of the matter is, is that from the very beginning, it is God alone who is enough for us. This is the story in the Garden of Eden. They had everything, and yet Eve had this sense within herself, there should be something more that I can grasp. There should be something more that will make me an equal to God. And, and in this, in this desire then, to find an equality with God in our hearts and in our minds, in this depth and in this grasping for completion, for wholeness, for fulfillment in our lives, in this we find kind of an insatiable thirst that leads us either deeper into the mystery of God or deeper into the illusion of something more than him, of something more than what is. We find this absolutely rampant in contemporary society, in a society that <clears throat> in many ways has said, you know, um, God has given me everything, but I want more. And so when I don't get the more that I want, then I don't believe in God anymore. And I believe this to be then a, a personal quest. And in, in this personal quest, um, we, we, we find and we seek and we, and we try to discover that, um, that we're going to be able to do this ourselves. That's, that's what we find. And so we cling on to things. And this is not just, you know, you and I looking for something more than what we have. That's not it. It's, it's not just um, saying, um, well, you know, I'm going to be a good Catholic. But along with being a good Catholic, I'm, always, I'm also going to overcome the world in which I live. It's, 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 none, it's none of this. It's this strange phenomenon. We can be wealthy or we can be poor as long as we realize that the very depth of our being and the essence of our meaning is not contained within ourselves, our achievements and our accomplishments, but in our relationship with the one who is greater than we are, the one who is far beyond us. And so that peace that we seek, and, and I think it's kind of interesting too, and I, I think we talked about this before, um, talking to a young woman not so long ago who says to me, um, gee, you know, growing up I was always told that, you know, the object of our life is to be happy. Um, well, that was the object of Eve's life too. That was the object of all sorts of people's lives. When we put it in those kind of terms, we're wrong. It's just not true. Um, the purpose in our life is to be fulfilled. And that fulfillment does not come from acquisition. And that fulfillment does not come from the proverbial hard work, although it is a virtue, by all means it is. Um, but, uh, but what it really is, is a sense ultimately of surrender. Surrender to the source of our being. Surrender to the source of the living God. Surrender, actually, in the depths of our hearts while living our lives as fully as possible. As Paul reminds us in the second letter to the Thessalonians, you know, that, uh, that 
you know, you have to work to feed yourself. You have to do this. You have to live in the world and you have to deal with the world. And you have to overcome the world to the best of your ability. But that's not the end goal. What they were doing is they were saying, you know, well, the Lord's going to return soon, so let's just kind of hang out and wait till he shows up. And, uh, and then all will be well. And Paul said, that's not how it's going to work. That's not how it's going to work. You're going to have to strive yourself. You're going to have to strive to make a life for yourself. You're going to have to strive to make a life for people you love. You have to, you're going to have to strive, you know, to find your way in this world. But don't ever believe that that's the final solution. Don't ever believe that that's the final answer. Because it is not. It is part of the process of getting there. It is not actually yourself arriving there and doing it on your own. So, as we go back to this gospel then, and we go back and we look over it, and we can't just cheaply say, see, wealth is bad, and rich people you know, um, aren't going to go to heaven. That's not what it says. And it isn't like saying that, you know, um, this man asking the question, you know, how, how, do, how, can I, how can I be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? And, um, and it isn't just saying, how do I go to heaven? It's saying, what is the wholeness and the fullness of my life? And here we come down to a fundamental core, a fundamental core principle, which all of us have to be aware of. And that is, and, and just an aside, even in postmodern philosophy, which, you know, has drifted as far away from reality and sanity as perhaps we could go, although maybe perhaps not, perhaps we've had some other more ridiculous things in the past, and we certainly, I guess we have. But they have come to conclude that a person is always incomplete in themselves, that they must be in relationship in order for them to become truly who they are as human persons. And so a fundamental insight from Genesis shows up as a revelation in a pagan philosophy thousands of years later. And, and, and it's interesting. If we would have listened to Genesis in the first place, we would have heard several things. It is not good for men to be alone. This doesn't mean that every man has to marry. This means that we are alone on this earth insofar as we do not have a relationship with the source of creation, the source of our being. Insofar as a relationship with the living God is lacking in our lives, the whole in our soul that this man asks about at the beginning of this gospel will never go away. It will become painful to us unless we come to understand that we gradually grow into its completeness, gradually grow into its fullness through the living out of our lives in a loving, relational, and responsible sort of way, struggling with the agonies that this a daily life and that the vagaries of this world impose upon us, as we, as we, we say in, in the Hail Holy Queen in this veil of tears. Unless we know that deep inside of ourselves we are in a relationship with something greater than we are, greater than anything we can find or anything that we can understand in this world. Unless we do that, we will always have the emptiness. And with that, the, and with that, the inner chaos, and with that, the, the inner confusion, and with that, the inner resentment, 
that that works itself out in our human relationships and in our daily lives, unless we realize that, there is no peace. And that we realize that in so many ways. It is, in a conversation with a, a priest friend the other day, the idea, ultimate reality is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's where God and man join together. That's where this comes to its own perfection. Ultimately then, in entering more deeply into the mystery of the incarnate Christ comes a deepening of the peace within the human soul. For us to reject the church, for us to reject God, is to exile ourselves from the possibility of wholeness. It is to lock deep into our souls, into our hearts, an interior sense of dissatisfaction. Look at the strife that goes on within families, among friends, all of this kind of thing, over a kind of, we know deep down inside what the whole thing really is. It's a resentment that somehow or other I wanted a perfect life, and somehow or other you have not given that to me, and I had expected that of you. Parents had expected that of their children, children of their parents, husbands of their wives, wives of their husbands, all of these kinds of things. And yet, like Esau, over and over again, the believer sells their birthright for a mess of pottage. Look at the people. This man was a ruler. He had great power. Look at the people who have clumped onto great power and have clung to it into their dotage by abandoning Jesus Christ and by abandoning the church, thinking, I will force perfection, I will force completion, I am whole because I am powerful. How sad. Because eventually they die. And then who have they been? They have been disciples of a great illusionist. They have become the disciples of a great cartoon characters. They have become disciples of the misunderstood, of the misguided, of the insane, actually, who have believed their own powers to be greater than that of the living God, who have believed themselves to draw disciples to them, only to lead them into ultimate darkness. As we read this gospel, don't read it with, you know, gee, I got too much money, or gee, I don't have enough money. Read it as, I have a hole inside of me. And what fills that? And how do I go about doing that? And how do I do that, not just as a moment, how do I do that as the story of my whole life? How do I do that so that my whole life is a journey toward the filling of the emptiness, the journey toward the ultimate filling of the whole deep within me, in which, as the young Spanish monk Rafael Baron said, we discover, solo Dios basta, only God is enough. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Sanctity